0: Welcome to One in Five, a podcast created by the Melbourne Disability Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Tessa DeVries. In this series, we'll be looking at how research can tackle some of the biggest issues facing people with disability and their families. Join us as we talk to a range of people about new research findings, possible solutions and policy ideas. Housing pressure is a major issue in Australia with housing affordability on the increase and a shortage of available housing across capital cities.
1: I've probably been house hunting legitimately properly for probably nine months. But as I said, if, if access wasn't an issue, I would have slotted in somewhere well before that. But then I've probably been looking and probably trying to find accessible housing for probably nine to 12 months. And got no, nowhere, like not even close.
0: In this episode, we'll be looking at housing from a disability perspective. What the research says about current conditions. People with disabilities were more likely to experience housing
2: disadvantage across a number of different housing characteristics compared to people without disability.
0: How the housing market is responding to changes brought about by the introduction of the NDIS.
3: Currently, just just not enough supply of affordable housing for them in the private market or in social housing.
0: But also what research shows works.
3: There are people out there
4: for whom individualised supported living is possible. They are not only making it possible, but they are thriving in these situations.
0: We'll talk to families who have made the transition to supported independent living. We actually never ever saw ourselves without Todd living with us. And we'll hear more from Oliver about his experience in trying to move to the city.
1: For me, it's more the physical access. I've got to live somewhere where I can get to the toilet or to the shower, or actually just in the building.
0: Stay with us as we hear from all these people and more about the impact of housing for people with a disability. But first, let's hear more from Oliver as he hunts for a house in Melbourne.
1: My name is Oliver Hunter, I'm 24. I'm originally from Albury, people call it Smallbury. Uh, Trying to move to Melbourne to find some work and just live the Melbourne life. But uh, as of now, I'm still at home in Albury and trying to figure out what I want to do with my life. Always love Melbourne. Everything I want to do is for me is in Melbourne. I love sport, so um, the AFL, cricket, tennis, and I want to find work. Hopefully, um, whether it be straight up sort of marketing or radio, a media job. I do a bit of stand up comedy as well, so I want to pursue that. Uh, But yeah, so everything I I want to do at this stage is in Melbourne, but yeah, that, that finding that accessible accommodation is uh, proving, uh, I don't want to say impossible, but if it was more probable, I would already be here and live, living here. Um, so I was born born with cerebral palsy. Um, it's a neurological condition, meaning that it starts in your brain and meaning everything affected in some way so yes I the obvious one the one that people can see is I um, use a wheelchair and my my legs don't function the way they should and I, I have explained it to people that as far as I can tell the part of my brain that says to my to my legs to to walk just isn't as active as someone else but then it also affects my uh coordination and fine motor skills so I'm no good at Jenga uh and stuff like that I've been sort of coming back and forth from, from Albury, um, and that's that's fine to a point. It does, it sort of starts to grind on you. You try and stay up and keep your head in the game and, and think all the positive things that you're told to think. But you do get to a point after you, you've trawled through um, apartments on all the mainstream, like flatmate sites or whatever you call it, and then you get, you just, you look and you go, I can't stay there because... I can't live there because the shower's in the bath or I can't, can't do that because there's steps to the door. So some that's the hardest thing. Sometimes you look at these great apartments in like Richmond or, or wherever and I couldn't even get in the door, let alone use you know whatever else is there.
0: Finding a good rental property in any capital city is not easy. There's lots of competition and lots of unsuitable properties. And when accessibility is your number one criteria, think about how many of those properties don't even make the short list it gets even harder. We're joined now by Zoe Aitken. I'm a research fellow in social epidemiology at the University of Melbourne. Zoe's research has demonstrated alarming statistics for the housing circumstances of people with a disability.
2: So we conducted a study describing the housing circumstances of Australians with disabilities before the implementation of the NDIS. So most NDIS participants will not have funding for housing as part of their NDIS package, But the NDIS is still likely to impact on people's housing because more people with disabilities will be able to live independently. So it might even increase the demand for housing. And we need to be able to evaluate the impact of the NDIS on people's housing. And to do that, we need high-quality baseline data, which is what we generated in
0: this study. This is going to come up a bit, so a short explainer. The NDIS only funds housing for 6% of participants who are considered high or complex needs. They're eligible for something called Specialist Disability Accommodation, or SDA for short. SDA is fully funded by the NDIS and pays for purpose-built or modified accommodation which caters to specific needs. Some of these we'll look at a bit later on. But as Zoe said, most people in the NDIS will not get financial assistance for housing, but they will have an increase in support that might assist them in living independently. Because of this, it is likely that there will be an increase in people who are able to live independently and who are looking for housing in the mainstream market because they're not eligible for SDA. Now back to Zoe.
2: To really understand where we needed to target more services and solutions, we examined what type of housing people live in. So we, we looked at social housing, private rental accommodation, but we also looked at people who had a mortgage or who were owner-occupiers, um, We found that the most interesting findings were for social housing and for private rented accommodation. A substantial proportion of people with disabilities were living in social housing, um, and that was about four times greater compared to people without disabilities. And
0: what about those people who couldn't access social housing? Yes, they were
2: more likely to live in unaffordable housing. We found that a large proportion of people with disabilities lived in the private rental market more than a quarter we actually found that the risk of living in unaffordable housing was about one and a half times greater for people with disabilities compared to people without disability. But when we looked at unaffordable housing, we didn't exclude um, any subgroups of the population. We just looked at everyone together. But the figures might actually be even more alarming than we quantified um, because we know that people who are living in social housing do not, by definition, experience unaffordable housing.
0: This is because social housing is kept at one third of people's income. A proportion generally understood to be manageable without causing financial stress.
2: So if we were to exclude those people we might see even greater differences in the proportion of people experiencing unaffordable housing. But I think that really highlights that we need to put a lot of emphasis on affordability of private rented accommodation as well as targeting social housing for people with disabilities.
0: And were you expecting to see this level of housing disadvantage?
2: I think we're all quite surprised by the extent of the disadvantage um, experienced by people with disabilities across so many different aspects of housing. Um, and and maybe we shouldn't have been surprised about this because we have looked at um in other studies at other measures of socioeconomic disadvantage and we have seen very similar patterns where people with disabilities experience poorer outcomes compared to people without disabilities, and that people with intellectual disability and psychosocial impairment tend to experience the worst outcomes. Um, But seeing it across so many different aspects of housing um, was really quite shocking and really shows some of those large inequalities experienced by people with disabilities and I think really highlights that this is a, um, a situation that really needs to be addressed.
3: So I think in Australia we have uh, a historical process where home ownership was ideologically uh, celebrated as something that is, um, is good for society. Australia wanted to be a homeowner society, so a lot of the incentives, the government incentives, tax incentives all went into home ownership rather than to uh, housing for low-income households like social housing. Hi, I'm Ilan Wiesel. I'm an urban geographer at the School of Geography. Uh, I do research on, on cities. So there's been some work done on comparing the amount of funding that goes indirectly into home ownership through things like exemption on uh, capital gains compared to the amount of funding that goes to uh, to social housing each year. And then you realise that um, it's, it's <laughs> disproportionately higher. Uh, so, um, so, I think that's, that's the issue. And I guess culturally, but also supported by those kinds of policies, housing has shifted from being understood as shelter, as a as home, as a place that where you live, into a commodity, as an investment that people now see as something that uh, they could profit from or at least uh, secure their retirement by investing in housing. So I think that created an inflationary pressure on housing and that's why we've seen since about the mid-1980s the the costs of housing rising well above inflation. So that's kind of the, the roots of the problem of our housing affordability crisis.
0: And what do you think needs to change?
3: Largely I think we need some kind of structural change in terms of how we think about housing. But if we kind of move down from this kind of Very, very big aspirational idea. How do we address specifically the problem of the 100,000 people that will be on the NDIS but have no affordable housing? I think we need to to understand who these people are, what are their specific needs, and then what specific housing models might suit them.
0: So the NDIS will fund housing for those with the most complex needs, about 6% of NDIS participants.
3: So in a way, they are the ones who we think are, in some ways, will be well accommodated by the NDIS, even though we're still seeing issues with the SDA market not really uh, arising to the challenge. The funding is available, but uh, the market is yet to respond at the scale that is needed. You know, we're in the very beginning of the scheme, so I think organisations are still trying to figure out, um, you know, where where the market is, where they should be building, what they should be building. So I think it's a start, but I think... The SDA part is the part that I'm less worried about, and I'm I'm more worried about the 94% who won't get funding for housing from the NDIS. I guess within that 94%, we think there's about 100,000 people who are on low incomes and who will not get assistance by the NDIS. So they will get individualized funding for support, but not for housing. So they will need to find housing either in the private sector or in social housing. And there's currently just, just not enough supply of affordable housing for them in the private market or in social housing. So that's, that's where the, the real worry is.
0: So why are we looking at increased numbers of people seeking housing?
3: I think close to half of these are people who are adults who narrowly with their parents. Uh, So until now, it was like a silent, hidden demand. They they weren't actively pursuing housing. They didn't look out for housing because they lived at home. They were getting the support they needed from their parents. Now their parents are getting older. They finally can now access the NDIS and get alternative supports to move out. So now they'll be out in the market looking for housing. Uh, And if they live in Melbourne or Sydney or a major city, they'll struggle to find housing with their level of income.
0: And that's definitely one part of Oliver's struggle to find housing. But he also has to find a home that is accessible. This difficulty in finding housing has had an impact on other parts of his life.
1: Because I can't access the housing, I can't access the ideal employment that I want. And I've got friends that have done the same degree or similar degrees that I went to uni with. They're three, four years into their careers. The sort of guy I went to school with yesterday at the train station randomly. And he said, "Oh, you know, I'm working for this cool sports marketing company. We just did this photo shoot with, with some footy players. It's just hard when you see a guy like that, you know, same age. He's, he looks all cool in his corporate sports marketing setup. And yeah, you sit there and go, well, the reason I can't access that has nothing to do with me. Like I said, it's not that I'm not qualified enough or I don't have the skills or the personality. It's the fact that there is a barrier that I have no control over. And I think that's the key thing that me and other people with disabilities have barriers that, that are there that they can't move or get around, but they also can't control. Obviously, living in inner-city Melbourne, as in any capital city in Australia, like it's become uh, very expensive. It's so much money. So that's, that's the hard thing. And there are, there are some projects out there that are providing accessible accommodation. But that, again, that is for what I've found is for like higher needs um, people. So people that need constant support. I definitely need some serious support from a structural point of view and, and some other support. But I'm definitely not in that bracket of like, I need someone there. So I'm just kind of stuck in the middle. Because I went to these projects and, and they said to me, so, but you can access mainstream housing. Well, I can, but I can't really.
3: There's a lot of rhetoric about choice uh, and how individualized funding might create choice. But what we saw was that there wasn't really any choice because uh, part of it was that in the housing market, there was no choice. So even if people had support funding, they were still locked out of the housing market. So that was a big finding.
4: I think independent living provides the basis for well-being on a number of levels. It enables people with disabilities to explore their own potential, it provides them with an opportunity to excel and achieve in a whole host of areas that maybe they never saw possible, it also provides families with an opportunity to to see their family member grow and develop in ways that they may never have imagined. It provides families with an opportunity for their their son or their daughter to move out of home uh, into a space of their own, so mum and dad can actually experience a life of independence themselves that maybe they, they never thought possible. So independent living, I think, has a multiplicity of benefits to a multiplicity of people. I think it also brings people with disabilities to the fore in our community and challenges those stereotypes, challenges those low expectations that otherwise hold people with disability back. And the more that a person with disability can have their own home, live in their own community, be seen by their neighbours as their own person, this is going to create, by default, a more inclusive society. Right, so I'm Keith McVillie. I'm the University of Melbourne's Professor of Disability and Inclusion.
0: Can you tell us a little bit more about your research into supported independent living?
4: Yeah, well, we've just completed a, a program of research led in partnership with our colleagues at Curtin University in Western Australia and the University of Sydney, as well as here at Melbourne and a host of community organisation partners across those three states and we spent three years visiting people with disabilities in their homes in individualised supported living situations and observing what was important for them, how they lived their lives and importantly what made those individualised living situations possible.
0: And what are some of the key factors for successful independent living?
4: Yeah, look, the vast majority of the arrangements, and and we looked at 150 of them in our study, were uh, private arrangements um, typically supported by a person's family. And as you might imagine, individualised living situations are so individual. Some people uh, were living lives in a home or a flat or a unit of their own. They went to work each day and that was their way of doing individualised living. Some people chose to share their home and it might have been sharing their home with a a co-tenant who might have a job somewhere else uh, and simply shared the home with them. That co-tenant didn't necessarily have a disability themselves. Other people chose to share their home with another person with that shared lived experience of, of having a disability and we met a number of people who were lifelong friends, and that was the basis of their shared living arrangement. Um, Some people had found a a flat or a unit on the open market, uh, and some people had, with the support of their family, developed some very interesting arrangements where the family had purchased a unit as an investment, and that person was able to live in that home and pay rent on it, and eventually they would inherit that home. Um, and those shared equity arrangements and family trusts were, were used by some families quite ingeniously to create situations of, of individualised living.
0: And through your research, have you also identified barriers to independent living?
4: I suppose one of the major barriers is simply having the vision that this is possible because simply knowing that this is a possibility is really important. Where families don't know that individualised supported living is a possibility, they think, well, what do we do? We want to make sure that our our son or our daughter or our brother or our sister um, is safe and secure, and so they go out looking for a, a group home, which is the typical model that we have available now. And I suppose what we wanted to do was to, through this project, showcase that there are alternatives to shared supported living arrangements.
0: Although not part of Keith's research project, we saw a lot of the things he talked about when we visited a family in Castlemaine. Todd and Josh welcomed us into their shared unit, where we talked to them and their families and housing support organisation Massarg about their own transition to supported independent living. (laughs)
5: <laughs> what about boys?
0: We actually
6: never ever saw ourselves without Todd living with us. Uh, he had never shown any real indication of wanting to move out, but when it was put to him, he jumped on it when the offer came from Kyneton to mm. go down and trial. I'm Leonie Briggs and I'm Todd's mum, who is living independently.
7: I'm Todd Briggs and I live with Josh.
8: I'm Sue Dixon. Um, my son Josh is independent living and I support him to do that. Well for me, Josh wanted to move out. One of his goals was to get, live out on his own or, you know, with somebody. Um, and we were given the opportunity for a trial down in some accommodation in Kiton. So we took it on and Todd seemed to be just there as well.
5: It's a service um, that's been a service provider in this area for a very long time called Windaring. Trying to get people into independent living um, away from the supported accommodations.
0: That's Beverly Vines, chair of Massarg, a local organisation working to find and secure suitable independent living sites in Central Victoria.
6: They actually taught them, you know, cooking skills, cleaning skills, coping skills, just yeah. the general coping in um, the gen- in the public outside of, in Crichton. Yeah. Preparation for this kind of independent living, so, so that, you know, it could lead on to private independent living. It definitely helps because, um, you know, there's issues you don't realise that are going to crop up. Mm-hmm. It's different when they're living at home and you're right on mm-hmm. site to deal with these problems, but when they're on their own and they don't know how to deal with it themselves and they've always called on mum or dad, mm-hmm. um, they didn't have that and so
0: they had to learn how to get around it and these people at the and showed them. Todd and Josh spent 12 months learning skills in their initial accommodation, while Leonie and Sue worked to find suitable accommodation for their more permanent, independent living arrangement. It took that took
6: 12 months just yeah.
0: watching and sourcing and
6: yeah. going and asking the real
0: estate agents. I found the internet very handy. <laughs> <laughs> we asked what was important when looking for suitable accommodation.
8: It's just somewhere quiet, we didn't, you know, there's certain parts that you think, well, oh, no, you wouldn't like them that close or that far out, and it was to be close enough that they could walk to places. We didn't want them relying the taxis, on taxis or all that sort of stuff. Yeah. facilities and the shops, yeah, um, so, yeah. It was so easy because, as you know, they're just across from the station, they're a blocking and a bit from the shops, they can walk... The I are... yeah, that. Josh bikes. can walk to the mushroom farm. He also goes to indaring as an adult training centre, so he can walk to that. Um, but then if they want to go through to Benigo, they can hop on the train, they can do that. They
0: know how to do that. While the unit leased by Leonie and Sue ticks many of the boxes, it is a rental property. This means that they are subjected to the insecurity of what can be a highly competitive rental market.
6: Mm. And really, private rental is what's available to us at the moment. There's nothing else out there. There isn't. There's nothing else out there to cater for our needs. So private rental is... The only way, and that, I suppose in some ways that's why
0: some parents are reluctant to move on. This is something that Bev finds from Masag comes up against often when trying to find suitable accommodation for people with disability who are transitioning into independent living.
5: We've been trying to push for housing in this area, because there hasn't been. There is no independent housing except for private rental at the moment. There's no social housing for people with disabilities. And what we're trying to do is increase those opportunities so that people um, like Todd and Josh can actually um, rent within the city uh, here. But... If it's with supported housing, like social housing, then they can do that a lot cheaper than being on the private rental market. Um, It's very expensive to live in Castlemaine. Um, Now, that was always the problem and there isn't that many opportunities, but we're trying through MassArg and um, and through key other people in the community to increase those opportunities.
8: Look, I I sort of didn't... I've worked in the disability field and I've seen it from the other side where parents in their late 80s, early 90s are bringing their 40, 50 year old child into care and the stress that it put on the child and I thought well I never wanted that for Josh but he wanted to move out so that made it easier Um, but being as a parent I know that he can handle it so I feel quite relaxed about him being out and know that if anything happens to me he's fine. Um, but even if, for some reason, something happens here and the owners decide they don't want to rent anymore, they want to sell, we'll look at it then as a new challenge, chapter, a new challenge. New whether years, you know we're, we're they're in the position to perhaps maybe buy if they want to stay here, or we just go on somewhere else. Exactly, it's that yeah, simple. Exactly. It's
6: life. You and can't. The fact that we now know that they're, um, they're capable, capable of, together taking risks, you've got to be prepared, got to, prepared to take prepared to risks. Take risks. Mm. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. But. Don't sugarcoat it, because um, there is things that crop up. We we haven't told you all the stories that crop up. If any other person, any other families want to, they do need to trial. I I couldn't see the two boys coming into private rental. Straight off. Straight off. They do need to trial to see if they can work it out, work together. We're not trying to sugarcoat it and make it sound really great and really fantastic because it's, it's not easy. It
8: is hard work. Yes, it's yeah. how you deal with deal problems with and
6: how yeah, big yeah. or small you make them. Yeah, yes. yeah.
4: I think it's always going to be a combination of government and families working together. I think with the National Disability Insurance Scheme now well in place, and the notion of individualised funding packages, it's going to make these options a lot more feasible, in terms of people being able to secure the support that they need, when they need it, and where they need it, on a very individualised basis. And whereas in the past, if you were looking for accommodation beyond the family home, the only place to look was with a block-funded organisation who typically ran four, five or six-bedroom group homes and that, that was the standard off-the-shelf arrangement. I think the individualised funding that the National Disability Insurance Scheme provides is really going to open up these opportunities.
0: That's Keith McVilly again.
4: Out of this process, we have developed the individualised supported living tool, which can be used to both evaluate an existing situation of individualised supported living or to be used as a planning tool to help people and their families and indeed National Disability Insurance Scheme local planners to prepare and plan for people's successful transition maybe from the family home to more individualised options.
0: You'll find a link to this tool on our website. Some research has shown shared equity models as an option for people with disability to avoid relying on the private rental market. In a shared equity arrangement, the cost of buying a house is split between a person with disability and an equity partner. The equity partner might be a family member, an NGO, or even the government.
3: So sometimes it's actually beneficial for for the state or the NGO that invested because they get back that investment. So that could work quite well for a very specific cohort. I think there's a group of people who might get some financial assistance from their families. It's not a huge one, but I think it exists. And these are people who might be able to enter shared ownership or shared equity. It's hard to actually quantify the number of people, but you know, even if we're talking about 10,000 people, it's a significant amount. And then these are people that you can assist into home ownership and then it reduces the pressure on social housing waiting lists, for example.
0: And have you seen examples of this model that work?
3: Yes, we have. We have seen some organisations that have shared equity models, and they, they do work. And people who have moved into shared equity, I guess the impact on their lives has been, it's been transformative. I guess, first of all, like the emotional sense of being an owner, as we, talk, we just talked about in Australia, how home ownership became a kind of an ideological thing and a status. So to feel as part of that uh, was quite significant for people. Uh, but also, we just saw very positive outcomes from health perspectives. Inclusion, just having networks with people, security of tenure. So in rental, you're, you, you never know how long you could stay there. And when it's your own home, it's, it's yours. And people could invest in it.
7: I think what we're starting to see is, through SDA, people are becoming more aware and conscious of the different housing types that people need, and at the end of the day, a lot of these design features that people are incorporating into SDA housing is generally just good design. That's
0: Queenie Tran, Chief Operating Officer of Summer Housing. Summer Housing and its parent organisation, Summer Foundation, have been finding housing solutions for people with disabilities since 2006. They spearheaded the movement to get young people with disabilities out of aged care facilities, an ongoing effort, but one that is likely to benefit with the introduction of the NDIS. We talked to Quinny about the opportunities that specialist disability accommodation can offer.
7: The NDIS has made a phenomenal change. Our projects with the 10 plus 1 model started off as a pilot, completely funded through philanthropy. The 10 plus 1 model is basically um, taking 10 apartments within any standard residential complex and redesigning that for people with disabilities and having a plus 1 on site support apartment so that those 10 people would have access to 24 hour support. Now, you know, we would love to be able to have more philanthropists that are actively looking at how to get younger people back into community and out of residential aged care, but Unfortunately, that's not something that a lot of philanthropists are able to really actively work in. So having something like the NDIS kick in um, and giving those opportunities and and coming up with a scheme that is robust to not just look at the housing model, but understanding the supports required around it and being able to service and and fund end to end on that. The NDIS really is the only mechanism and and the only place that that could really be catered for. Um, So... We've seen that through the NDIS, we've been able to get some really phenomenal outcomes because we've been able to provide not just accessible housing, but come up with a support model and working with some fantastic support providers to really look at providing, a, I guess, a a full wraparound service around the individual and making sure that they're going to be able to be safe while living in community. A lot of our work is actually working with other providers stakeholders um, working directly with the NDIS and, and giving them feedback as to what it's like um, and, and really trying to understand more of the scheme. One of the biggest things that we want to be able to do is really pass through any of our learnings. So as an organization we develop our own design guide, um, we, we create quite a lot of materials in terms of um, different design innovations coming up with different strategies so that we can customize and adapt designs to suit people and their individual needs and work with OTs and different people in the allied health space to really formulate different ways of thinking about accessible design. But we also identified that there's a number of gaps missing in terms of what available options are in the community and and what innovations people are are looking to adapt. It's really trying to understand those other facets of disability that aren't the typical type that um, a lot of building and construction is always focused on. We're really so limited to understanding it through building code requirements and Australian standards, which always talks about wheelchair accessibility. Um, We never really get to understand the complexities of disability and all the varieties of design that needs to be accommodated for that cohort. We're really just now getting into that point where we're starting to see new projects popping up and more and more people are, are talking about SDA. So... I think it's, it's going to be a matter of time before people are, are becoming more aware of housing options for people with disabilities to be not just the group homes, but you know, hopefully looking at apartments, villas, duplexes and, and all sorts of different configurations of support.
0: These projects, and others that focus on housing for people with complex support needs, offer great potential for those who are eligible for housing support in the NDIS. But we need to be providing better and more affordable housing solutions for the 94% of NDIS participants who do not receive financial support for housing, and for those not eligible for the NDIS at all. We asked Alain what research was showing as the most effective way to manage this.
3: I think social housing is is sort of, to me, the obvious solution for a large number of people. Uh, It provides security of tenure. People pay 25% of their income, so it's affordable for them. Uh, So social housing, the way the rent is structured, is designed to to always be affordable. From talking to people who lived in social housing, we we, we spoke to a lot of people in various studies that I did. Uh, The people who lived in social housing were probably the happiest uh, when we compared them to people who moved to, to say, to private rental, uh, because they had that security of tenure. I think that was really meaningful for people. And we've, we've ran some economic models showing that, in fact, every dollar you invest in, in housing uh, gives you a, a much higher return by saving on those other systems, and especially the justice system. The justice system and health are huge expenditures, where housing, we know if, if we invest in housing, we can reduce those expenditures substantially.
6: It's been a huge change. Oh <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's a huge change for me. Um, it's always been part of my life and you can't turn away from that. At home, it wasn't easy. Everything that we did had to involve Todd. And I don't want Todd to think that's that's awful. <laughs> but if we went away on a holiday, Todd came. If we went to have dinner with friends, Todd came. And it was always the provision for... Todd as part of our life. And we were lucky, very lucky. But um, this has allowed Todd to be independent as well as the parents be independent. Mm-hmm. The parents, it's we are so independent yeah. now. Mm-hmm. We and can I go don't, off don't on a holiday, Not well, it's just amazing. Yeah, Yeah, I've noticed a lot more confidence in Todd, yeah. <laughs> a lot more, yeah, he's come into his own right, yeah, as a person,
0: definitely. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. that was Leonie Briggs closing this episode of One in Five we have lots of information and links related to the housing research in this episode up on our website visit disability.unimel.edu.au to check it out and you can sign up to our mailing list there too we'd love to hear your thoughts and we hope you join us next time on One in Five